7 o'clock, y'all sound fantastic. Uh, if you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor, one of our elders here at the Austin Stone Heave Bible. Go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Um, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It'll be in the screen behind me, or if you can't find where it is in your Bible, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me. Um, this is our third week in the book of Jonah, and... Hopefully you're already beginning to see that this is a different kind of book because of the uniqueness of Jonah as a prophet. If you know anything about the Old Testament or you grew up in church and you're familiar with the prophets, you know the prophets typically when you read about them are these great leaders and teachers of ancient Israel that though they had shortcomings, though they had failures, they were genuinely trying to obey the word of God, but this is not the case with Jonah. Jonah. Jonah's not trying to obey. He's running from God as fast as he can. And this week in the story, we come to this pivotal moment in the story where Jonah's going to make the confession that is the theme of the book in his prayer to God. He's going to say that salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, as simple and as correct as that statement is, Jonah does not come to this conclusion easily or quickly. And I love the story of Jonah because it highlights something I love about the Bible, and that's its honesty. I love how honest the Bible is. I have not found a book as insightful or as honest in its depiction of what life is like and what it feels like to be human. When I first became a Christian my senior year of high school, when I read the Bible, that was what I found most compelling about it was its honesty. See, I had grown up in and around church and around a lot of Christians. I grew up in the Dallas area, so if you walk 10 feet, you fall into a church the way it is there. And what happens in that sort of context, it's really easy to confuse the derivatives for the source. So I, I just assumed that the churchgoers I'd been around, that the way they talked about God, the way they talked about humanity, the way they talked about life is the way the Bible talked about those things. But what happened, as I read the Bible for myself, I was blown away at how unapologetic the scriptures were. I mean, all I'd basically heard so far was that God loves me. And then I read the Bible for myself, and I found out God does indeed love me, but I don't know him very well. That he is this king who doesn't share his glory with another. What I found in the Bible is that God is much more wild than I imagined him to be. He's good, but he's not at all in my control. And then when I read the Bible, I found its description about people profound. You read the scriptures, and there's not good guys and bad guys. There are stories of heroes who are fatally flawed and stories of villains who prosper. There are stories of people who genuinely loved God, and yet they fail him miserably. That the strongest end up being the weakest, and the weakest end up being the strongest, that the same people who prayed sincere prayers of thanksgiving and praise of God are the same people who prayed prayers of sadness and confusion and doubt. What I found in the scriptures is what I found in life, that things are not always tidy and neat and easily put into categories, but life is often a complicated mess. And the Bible speaks authoritatively into that and gives insight into what's going on at any given moment. So we have stories like Jonah, where you have this prophet of God who at one point in his life loved God and obeyed him and listened to him, and now he's at a point in his life where he wants nothing to do with God, nothing to do with what his word has to say. He's actually, he wants to quit following God. 
And this is something that every Christian in this room is going to face at some point in your life. At some point in your life, you are going to want to quit the faith. At some point in your life, you're gonna want to quit the faith. It's going to feel too difficult. You're going to think, maybe you're thinking it. You're gonna think in that quiet, that deep part of who you are, you're going to secretly think, this whole Jesus thing is not paying off the way that I thought it would. You're going to have lost too much. His commands and his word are gonna seem outdated and nearsighted. And you're gonna think about the future and you're gonna think, how in the world am I going to keep going? I can't imagine a future where I'm still believing in God and following him. And listen, you don't do yourself any favors by pretending this isn't happening or acting like it'll never happen to you. I'm not saying every season will be like this, but you will have seasons like it. I've been believing in and following Jesus for 14 years and I've already had two seasons of my life where I was on the brink of quitting. And, and, And I don't mean quitting as a pastor, I mean quitting in the faith, quitting as a Christian. I had one season in particular of my life where I had intellectual questions that I just, at the time, I could not reconcile. How do I make sense of what the Bible says and what I know about reality? And the other season was when I was going through suffering and I prayed for God to heal and to change and save and God said, no, no, no. And in both of those seasons, I learned what every Christian learns when they go through those seasons of life It's what we're gonna learn today from the text in Jonah. Here's the main point. When we want to quit, God keeps us and God teaches us. That when you want to quit, God keeps you and God teaches you. That Jonah tried to quit and God kept him and taught him. So let me give you some context before we get into the verses today if you've missed the last couple of weeks. God comes to Jonah and the word from the Lord, he says, Jonah, go preach to Nineveh. He says, no thank you, goes the opposite direction. And he gets in a ship sailing in the opposite direction he's supposed to go, and then God sends a storm on that ship. It's so intense that everyone on on the ship is, is threatened to die. So Jonah tells the sailors, hey, I'm your problem. If you just throw me overboard, you'll be fine. At first they don't wanna do it, they try to dissuade him from this notion, but after they exhaust every measure, they realize they're gonna have to throw him overboard and toss him into the sea. Look at Jonah 1.12. He, being Jonah, said to them, to the sailors, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. They try to say no, then a couple verses later, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. He's saying, my disobedience is the reason for the storm. So they throw him into the sea. And you and I, if you're familiar with Jonah, you know how the story goes. A fish comes and swallows Jonah up, saving his life. Now, we need to remember, though, for in Jonah's mind at that point in time, when he says, throw me overboard, he is not expecting to be saved. And he is not expecting especially to be swallowed by a fish. He has no expectation that's going to happen. He's not saying, hey, fellas, throw me at 1230 because the fish is going to be passing by at that point in time. That's not what he's saying. He has no expectation that he's going to be saved. When he says, 
thrown me overboard, he's saying, I'm ready to die. He has to think, this is how he's going to go. And he's so numb to life, he so badly wants to quit, he so badly wants to get away from God that he's saying, I'd rather sink to the bottom of the ocean and be away from God than do what he's telling me to do. But God does something completely unexpected and he saves his life. And he does it in the most unlikely of ways. He doesn't send another ship to pick him up. He doesn't give him some debris to float on. He has him swallowed by a fish. Now, if right now your mind's going, how in the world can we really believe that actually happened? Listen, if you're an Orthodox Christian, the church for the last 2,000 years has believed Jesus rose from the dead and he's coming back on a horse in the sky. You believe crazier things than this, okay? So we're all on the same page. Don't miss the point of what the text is saying. The point of the text is saying, in the belly of this fish, here's what we find. Jonah is quitting on God, and yet God is not quitting on him. That's what you find. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So somehow... Jonah survives for three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. Now, once again, it can be easy to get entangled in, well, how, how could you possibly survive for 72 hours in that sort of state, in that sort of condition? Don't get lost in that. What's more remarkable than his survival, what's more remarkable is that it took him that long to pray. It took him that long to pray. Look, the text is very clear about the order of how this happened. Look back at verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then what do you see in verse 1? Then, after he's been there for 72 hours, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So why was he in there three days and three nights? Why not three hours? Why not one day? Why not four days? Because that's how long it took for Jonah to finally come to God in a prayer of repentance. That's how stubborn Jonah was. I mean, you would think, you would think that when he throws himself overboard and he's sinking, he's thinking, okay, I'm about to die, getting ready to die. Then he's swallowed by a fish and he thinks, okay, surely I'm about to die. And then an hour goes by, he's like, how am I still alive? Like, you would think that in his mind, he's like, I think I'm going to lose. Like, I think somehow God's going to get his way on this thing. Because listen, he is a prophet of the Lord. He knows what's going on. He knew the storm came because of his disobedience. He has to know that the reason he's in this fish is because of his disobedience. You would think he would give in. I I hope that if I'm swallowed by a fish, I start praying at least within 10 minutes, right? 72 hours. He refuses to pray. Why? He's done. He does not want to obey God. This is what the human heart is like towards God apart from God's help. The human heart is like this towards God apart from God's help. We are good with God speaking in certain areas of our life. We are good with God affirming us and telling us he loves us. But when he indicts us or contradicts us or someone that we love, we find ourselves rejecting him. We find ourselves saying there's no way he could be that way. And what you and I tend to do is we act like petulant children who want to show off how strong we are and how wrong our father is. 
Now I know the vast majority of you in this room are not parents, so bear with me on this illustration, but I know for me, when I became a parent, I knew my life would change. Like, I knew there'd be adjustments, I knew it wouldn't be the same, but I never would have known, no matter how much anyone told me this would happen, I'm, I'm getting you ready for this, if you, one day when you have kids, let me tell you what's going to happen. I never would have known that I would spend so much time with my young children, telling them, asking them, commanding them, begging them, and pleading with them to eat food. I never thought so much of my life would be spent doing this. I thought I'd be teaching my children the ways of the Lord. Nah, eat your food. That's what my main thing is right now. Just eat it. And not even things like broccoli, like eat your pizza. I'm begging you to eat pizza. I've never seen anything like it. I have convinced my children so many times that I have magical powers and they believe me. They really genuinely believe me. But then as soon as I ask them to eat their dinner, it turns into a hostage negotiation. That's what happens at my house all the time. And so my firstborn, Elle, was by far the most difficult. She and I, especially when she was younger, had some epic standoffs over dinner. And not all of them were super tumultuous and loud. A lot of them were like the Cold War, to see who's going to blink first on this thing, right? Who's going to wait who out? She was never, never more stubborn than when we were trying to eat dinner. And here's what she's doing. She's thinking, I'm just going to wait, and this old man's going to give in eventually. And she has no idea how stubborn I am, and I will die at this dinner table. <laughs> I'm not losing to a three-year-old, okay? I lose a lot. I'm not losing to you, Elle. That happening. And so, but she's trying to flex and trying to show me, I'm going to wait you out. And what does she find over time? Well, I have more longevity than she does, that I'm more stubborn than she is, and she realizes she's not strong enough to wait me out, but yet, that's what Jonah's doing. That's what we do. We try to wait out God. We try to resist him in certain areas, thinking eventually he'll relent and he'll change. See, this room of people, most of you in this room, I doubt that you think, I want to get rid of God completely. I, I doubt you're thinking, I want to re reject him completely. Maybe you're in that season right now, and you're here out of faithfulness and discipline, but for the most part, I think all of us in this room, we want God to be in our lives. We want God to be around. We want him at the dinner table, so to speak. We just want him to be quiet about certain things. We just want him to quit talking about and telling us to do things we don't want to do. And so what happens is we begin to avoid him and disregard him on those areas, whether it's money or sexuality or our time or education or relationships, whatever it may be, we want him to be quiet about that, so we start to avoid him. And what happens is maybe certain parts of certain sermons, they get to sections that you don't want to hear, you kind of tune them out. Or you've been convicted to do something and your friends, your Christian friends who know what you were supposed to do, you quit hanging out with them as much. You pray less, you read the Bible less, and what are you doing? What am I doing so often? I don't want to obey. I'd like him in my life, but I'd like him to be quiet. And we just think if we wait long enough, eventually he'll tire and relent. Jonah sat there trying to do that for three days and three nights. And yet how did God treat him? God lovingly sustained him and waited him out. See, the only way Jonah entered into that fish and stayed alive in that fish was a special intervention of God. So for three days, imagine from, from God's point of view, 
for 72 hours, he is watching his prophet in this very tight, confined space wriggle and squirm, refusing to talk to him. Just refusing. And God could have responded to that in a lot of different ways. He could have said, dude, I'm giving you your 10th chance here and you're not taking it. And he could have destroyed him. Or he could have put more pain and more pressure on him to really show how frustrated he was with him. And yet, what does God do? God waits. God sustains him. God keeps him alive. And God shows him that he is his father who is patient and kind and gracious and strong. And he's not about to be strong-armed by his children, no matter how much they may think that they're right. Listen, when you and I are in seasons of difficulty and doubt and disobedience, God is not scared away from you. He's not worried about whether or not if you'll make it. He knows you're going to make it. He knows he's going to get you through. He knows he's going to sustain you. That even when your faith is fragile, and even when your faith is weak, and even when your faith is sinking down to the depths of darkness, he's there secretly working, sustaining, and moving you to where you need to be. Our hope as Christians is not ultimately that we will be faithful to God or disciplined enough or obedient enough. Our hope is always that he will sustain, he will endure, he will carry us through. After 72 hours, Jonah finally comes to his senses. He finally goes, okay, God, you're after me, you're right, you're good, you alone save, and you are right to save anyone you please. And he finally prays. There's a lot of you in this room, I'm sure, who are in the midst of darkness and disobedience, and you've been running from God, and you could save yourself a lot of pain and trouble and time if you would just pray like Jonah tonight. You'd come home. Look at how Jonah prays, Jonah 2, 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. See, God sent the fish not simply to save Jonah's life, but to restore their relationship. It's not just about the fish. He's trying to restore their relationship. God let Jonah sink to save him. God lets us sink to save us. 
And Jonah's prayer is full of imagery and theology and confession, and there is way too much to cover in the time that we have. So let me hit two things in these 10 verses. I want you to look at, if you're in a season of darkness, or you're entering into one, and you can feel it, and you're disobeying God, and you're running from him, where do you start? Where do you begin your prayers? I want to look at where do you start your prayers, and where do you end your prayers when you're in a season of darkness and distress and despair? Look at where you start. Look at verse 2. Look at how Jonah starts. Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You begin your prayer in darkness by honestly crying out to him, expecting for him to hear you. You honestly cry out, expecting him to hear. I love that Jonah does not sugarcoat things here. He doesn't say, God, I'm doing okay, just kind of struggling, help me out a little bit. No, he says, I'm in distress. And look at how he, the language he uses. He says, out of the belly of, not of a fish, because he's currently in the belly of a fish, but he says, I'm actually in the belly of Sheol. Sheol is this massive term in the Old Testament that, that carries with it a lot of meaning, a lot of significance for the Hebrew people. But for our purposes, it means death. It means nothingness. It means emptiness. And he's saying, I'm not just in a fish here, God. I am lost in every possible way. I'm broken in every possible way. I know I'm more than just stuck in a fish. I'm stuck in death. That's what he's saying. He is so honest about where he's at. He's so candid about what's going on. He's in despair. He cries out in honesty, but also he cries out expectantly. He cries out and he says, I cried and you heard my voice. And later on in the prayer, he says that my voice, my words, made it to your holy temple. He's saying, God, I know you're transcendent in your temple. I know you're lofty and lifted up. I know you're like nothing else and no one else I know. And yet when I pray in the darkest moment of my life, you're right there listening. God, this is where I'm at. And this is where you are. You're here. He prays expectantly. And Jonah knows he's here because of his actions and his fault. And yet God's there immediately to meet him. Far too often when you and I realize that we have been running from God and sinning against him and in disobedience, we are slow to pray. We're slow to pray. We may think about and analyze our lives. We're slow to confess our lives to God. Slow to directly address him in prayer because it's the human instinct with God when you realize you've messed up to begin to try to clean yourself up. To begin to say, okay, God, I recognize I messed up. I'm not gonna confess where I am and say I'm broken. I'm gonna say, okay, God, here's all my promises and here's all my plans about how I'll be different. Maybe you've done this before. Maybe you've done this at a youth group before. You get saved, and what do you do? I promise I'll never do this again. Here's my plan how I'm going to never do that again. What are you doing? You're trying to tell God, I'm worthy of your love. I get it. I'm making amends. I'm atoning for what I did. Jonah doesn't do any of that. He doesn't make any promises. He doesn't make any plans. All he says is, I'm broken, and I need you. 
He's honest about his distress. He's honest about his despair. And when he prays and when you come to him in your dark seasons, you can expect him to hear you. He doesn't make you wait in line, doesn't make you take a number. He doesn't say, here's the four things you need to do before I love you. He says, I'm right here waiting for you. I've been here the whole time. You pray honestly and expectantly. That's where you start. And as you pray, the thing about prayer is as you pray, God will use your prayer to him to begin to mold and shape your own heart. And you'll begin, and the goal of prayer is to end in confessing the vanity of idols and the worthiness of God. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Stop there. He's saying every other God, every other promise, every other way of life makes all these promises of security and safety and happiness and flourishing. And he's saying all of them ultimately are vain. They'll work for a season, but eventually they'll run out of power and love. Eventually you'll find yourself in darkness that your best friends and your family members and your gods that you've trusted can't go with you to. You'll find yourself failing in ways that they don't want to forgive you for. Ways you don't want to forgive you for. He's saying, when you trust in idols that aren't God, you forsake hope of steadfast love. Because he says in verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Idols are vain. You have salvation. That's why I'm going to follow you. That's why I'm going to worship you because you're the one who has salvation, not me. He's saying God endures and God sustains and God's love never runs out. You can't exhaust him or get away from him. That life with God is a completely undeserved gift that he was not obligated to give to you. What he's saying, in short, is it's grace. He's saying all of life is grace. He's saying salvation never belonged to me. It never belonged to Israel. And it doesn't belong to you, church. It belongs to God. It's his gift to give. And this is the point. This is the point God had been driving Jonah towards since he told him, go preach to Nineveh. He's teaching him about grace. That's, what he, that's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't think the Assyrians were worthy of God. He didn't think they deserved it. See, deep down in Jonah's heart, and just like deep down in your heart, deep down we think God loves us, and God loves his people because of something special about us. Jonah wouldn't say, and you wouldn't say, we're not perfect. But Jonah in his mind thinks, but we're not nearly as bad as the Assyrians. And listen, you and I can say we believe in grace. You can have a great doctrinal statement that's beautiful and eloquent about the grace of God and how you believe in it but you don't know how much you believe in the grace of God until he extends his grace to people you don't think are worthy of it. It's not until he begins to bless and save people you think are less than you when you begin to see, do I really believe I need grace? When God gives grace to people who sin differently than you. 
to people who have wronged and hurt you, to people who have opposed you. So you may believe, no, I need God to forgive me and I need grace. And you may believe that in theory. But do you really believe that God could forgive and give grace and give an equal standing in the church and in his kingdom to a porn addict, to a drunk, to your political opponents, to racists, to lovers of money, to adulterers, and liars, and sexists? Could he really give grace to people who wronged and hurt you, people you haven't forgiven yet? Do you really need, do you really need the same exact grace as everyone I just listed? Do you really believe that? The scandalous nature of the grace of God is that the way to know God is the same for me as it is for ISIS and the KKK. And if you really consider that, and you realize it's grace for them and for me, you begin to realize how grace offends our sensibilities. Because we deep down think, there's no way I'm as bad as that person. Now, listen, am I saying, is the Bible saying that every single sin is equal in the way it affects other human beings and the way it distorts reality and destroys people? No, clearly there are different manifestations of human sinfulness in different ways and different earthly consequences. But the Bible is saying, God is saying to Jonah and to you and the world, The way to know him for every person is grace. So that means every person is equally as needy before him. There is no special way for well-to-do middle-class people. Same way back for everybody. And this, listen, offends us But it's such incredible news. It really is incredible news because grace sets you free. Listen to me, it sets you free. It sets you free from this pressure that God will only be good to me so long as I'm good to him. So many of you live the Christian life as if if I fail once or I mess up once, then I have no assurance that God will be with me or for me or bless me. The Christian life becomes highly pressurized when we believe it's dependent dependent upon our performance. And your joy becomes really small when you think all the good in your life you earned. Because no one rejoices over a paycheck. You ever notice that? None of you are going to get paid in the next two weeks and go, hey, call your friend. Guess what? I got paid for my job this week. Like none of you are going to do that. Why? Because you earned that money. You should get paid that money, right? But how would you feel if you found out in two weeks that you were going to get paid less than what you should get paid? Or if you didn't get paid at all? None of you are going to say, trust the Lord, bless his name. None of you are saying that. 
When you don't get paid the things you think you're owed, you get angry and frustrated and anxious. If you think life is a paycheck, then when you have good things in your life, your gratitude and your joy will be small because you think you earned them. And then when you fail, you'll be terrified thinking, well, now he's going to take everything from me because I didn't keep up my end of the bargain. So you're filled with anxiety and fear and pressure because he'll take it away if I fail. And grace sets you free to say, no, no, everything you have is good as a gift. And even when you fail, your relationship with God does not rise and fall with your obedience. Now listen, it's much more joyful to obey God, but there is not any less love for you when you fail him. The pressure was not on you to earn his love and the pressure's not on you to keep it. The reason he loves you is because he wanted to, not because you were special, but because he is. So now you can be set free. You don't have to constantly jockey in this life, wondering if you'll be loved, wondering if you'll be accepted, wondering if you'll have a name in this life. God's already given you all those things in his grace. He sets you free. And grace sets you free to love and rejoice in the flourishing of other people. It is a sweet, refreshing thing to be able to be happy for the flourishing of other people than secretly resenting their success. I'm telling you, it is a good thing to see someone else's success and go, I'm happy for them. Instead of being bitter and wondering, why wasn't it me? I worked harder than them, I did more than them, why am I not getting recognized? Because all bitterness does is poison you. It is such a better thing to have your heart break for people, not out of some sort of condescending tone like you're better than them, but your heart break for people because you love them and you want better for them. To not secretly rejoice at their demise and think you didn't have the same fate because you were more disciplined or faithful. Compassion, empathy, and sacrifice bring so much more life to your soul than apathy and frustration and hoarding, but that's what you'll do for other people if you really don't believe you're as needy and dependent upon God's grace as them. You'll find it difficult to relate to certain people in this life because you'll think, well, I don't understand how you could ever fail that way. I hear this all the time in the church and I have to bite my tongue when I hear it. When someone says something to the extent of, how could you ever struggle with that? Like how could someone ever sin in that way? Every time I hear that, I wanna say, I don't know, how can you struggle with, with being judgmental? There's no way of knowing, right? Like, You notice how we do that? Their sins are rational. Mine makes sense. Justice for them, mercy for me. Clearly they're wrong. I'm complicated, right? Like that's what we do. That's what we do. Grace sets you free to be able to recognize you are as needy as the worst person you can imagine the grace of God. And so now with every person, even if you don't share the same background or story or history or economic status, you can at least relate to the the need of grace. You can go, I know what it's like to need grace. I need it all the time. If you truly think that you are as undeserving as anyone on this planet for good gifts and God's grace in your life, then you're much more apt to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Grace sets you free to love other people. 
See, salvation belonging to the Lord is the culmination of praise of a heart that gets grace. A heart that understands I've been given the unmerited, infinite grace of God. It's for me. I never have to doubt it. I never have to feel the pressure of keeping it. And when you get that, that's the ground from which love for other people flows. The reason Jonah doesn't want to love Nineveh because he doesn't get his own neediness for the grace of God. So God goes to the source and shows him, you need grace as much as they do. Jonah the prophet is praying what he'd already been preaching. He's a prophet, he knows salvation belongs to the Lord. This is not a novel statement for him, but it's the first time he's probably believed it. That's what what the Christian faith is like, you know this. You say things to be true, and then you have seasons where you come to believe them to be true. You can say, I believe in grace by faith alone, and then you have seasons where God teaches you, no, I genuinely believe I'm saved by grace through faith alone. Jonah prays this, and look what God does in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So once Jonah finishes his prayer, what does God, he tells the fish, all right, time to vomit him up, right? And that is quite the disgusting scene to imagine for poor Jonah. But here's the thing I want to point out. Jonah stayed in that fish for as long as it took him to learn what God was teaching. As soon as he learned it, he was done. God will keep you in darkness. God will keep you in distress, not for a moment longer than he has to. So if you are still in darkness, and still in distress, and still in despair, it must mean that he's still teaching and forming and shaping something in you because he wouldn't let you stay there for no purpose and no reason. Now, if you're there, you're thinking, well, what's the reason? I don't know all that he's trying to accomplish, but I do know, I do know the promise is the darkness will eventually lift. That's the promise from Jonah. That once he's done teaching you, whatever it is he's teaching you, the darkness will lift. And now listen, restoration and darkness lifting in this life looks a lot of different ways. Sometimes it will mean total restoration and total healing. But don't let the prosperity gospel preachers confuse you and deceive you into thinking that the darkness lifting in this life always means total and complete healing. Sometimes restoration in this life means walking with a limp. Sometimes it means knowing how to weep instead of knowing how to sing. Sometimes it means knowing how to suffer well and knowing how to trust him in the midst of that. And listen, sometimes it means God bringing you home in death. Remember, for the Christian, to die is gain. But here's his promise. The darkness will not last forever. And even in those dark, despairing moments, even in the belly of a fish, God is working and keeping and teaching. And when you get on the shore, you'll look back and you'll see his hand accomplishing those things. See, Jonah's story His story is bigger than just Israel and Assyria. It's about the whole world. Jonah's actually getting us ready for an even greater miracle of God, for him to teach the whole world that salvation belongs to him. When Jesus is talking about his own ministry, of all the Old Testament prophets to relate himself to explicitly, he chooses Jonah. 
Look at what he says in Matthew 12, verse 40. He says, this is Jesus speaking, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, I came to be a better Jonah for the world. He's saying the world All people were stuck in this storm that no amount of effort or religiosity could save us from it. He's saying in this storm, the waves of sin and death were beating against our ship and they were slowly but surely destroying us and breaking us apart and swallowing us into the sea. He's saying there were whirling winds of Satan's lies that were coming into your life and deceiving you and tossing you to and fro, and causing you to stagger, and only multiplying your shame and your guilt. And all the while for the world, there were the stormy clouds of God's wrath looming over us with the impending judgment for our sin. And no amount of effort could stop the storm. No amount of discipline could calm the winds. And Jesus came aboard this ship to serve us in the midst of the storm. He wasn't a prophet running from the word of God. He was a son of God sent by his father to save us. And he came to us and he said, I'm here to be thrown overboard for you into the sea. And while Jonah sunk into the bottom of the sea and was swallowed into the belly of a fish, Jesus on the cross descended into death and he was swallowed into the belly of the wrath God. Jesus descended down deeper and he went into the darkest suffering imaginable. Why? He went down into the earth so that on the surface, on our ship, the storm would cease. So that when it came to God, you would no longer be caught in the storm, in the curse of sin and the fear of death and the looming wrath of God. He's saying, Jesus, I'm being thrown overboard for you so it'll stop. So the clouds will dissipate and you will feel on your skin the warmth of God's love shining on you. That you will be able to experience the gentle breezes and the gentle sways of his kindness and gentleness. That you would have placid, beautiful blue waters of hope stretching out as far as the eye can see. He says, I'll be thrown overboard for you. And then God raised him up. He didn't vomit him out of a fish. He resurrected him from the dead in the midst of every storm. Listen, in every trial, even the ones you make, even when you fail again, even when you said you'd never fail again and you fail for the millionth time, we now have a hope that transcends. Jesus went down deeper And he went further, and he came out stronger. So you would know, Christian, God is always with you, even in the greatest darkness, even in the greatest disobedience of your life. He's always there. That every time we want to quit, and every time we're surrounded by darkness, and every time we feel lost to doubt, and every time we feel our faith sinking, here is the promise for you. He's keeping, and he's teaching. That every time you flounder, God will be faithful to sustain you, and he will get you to the end. You don't have to worry, will you make it? He promised you will. 
And even if it means going to the belly of a fish, he'll get you there. So church, quit running. Quit resisting. Quit trying to wait him out. He's not gonna tire. He's not gonna relent. Some of you, God has been pursuing you and convicting you of certain areas of your life and you've been trying to get away from him for months, maybe even years, and yet you just keep coming back around him and he keeps convicting you, he keeps challenging you. I'm just gonna plead with you, come home. Quit running. It's a waste of your time because when you're God's, he will have you. Some of you have been having conversation for conversation tonight's the night just to say, I'm done, I give up, I'm yours. Because you can know every time you run, he's waiting for you. And as soon as you say, God, I finally get it, he's right there to meet you as your father. Let's pray together. Father, this is a life that is so often weary and so often difficult and so often full of our failures and doubts and difficulties and sufferings. And God, before we sing, God, we just wanna come to you and confess and say, God, so many of us are in the midst of darkness. So many of us have been disobeying you in ways and thinking that if we just got a little bit better and just had more time and that we'd finally change. And God, we're coming to the end of ourselves and we wanna say, God, I am in the belly of Sheol. I'm lost in every possible way. Save me. I'm done running. I went to vain idols and they left me wanting. God, I tried running from you and every time I thought I found something, it slipped through my fingers. And God, because of the cross and the death of Jesus, we can know the moment we say, God, save me, you're there in that moment. God, there are Christians in this room who've been running from you because they're hurt and they're tired. God, tonight, would you restore them? Teach us how to trust. Teach us how to believe grace for us and for others. Teach us to be a people who pray and think and talk and preach and live grace. We wouldn't have it any other way because salvation belongs to you. And for those of us, God, who, God, have never believed, we want to. As we sing this song, give us faith to believe for the very first time and give us faith to believe for the millionth. God, knowing you will get us home knowing you will sustain us and endure us to the end. God, we pray all these things in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus Christ.